Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of A Tramp Abroad by Mark Twain. Volume 3, Chapter 9 One day we took the train and went down to Mannheim to see King Lear played in German. It was a mistake. We sat in our seats three whole hours and never understood anything but the thunder and lightning, and even that was reversed to suit German ideas for the thunder came first and the lightning followed. The behavior of the audience was perfect. There were no rustlings or whisperings or any other little disturbances. Each act was listened to in silence, and the applauding was done after the curtain was down. The doors opened at half-past four, the play began promptly at half-past five, and within two minutes afterwards all who were coming were in their seats and quiet reigned. A German gentleman in the train said that a Shakespeare play was an appreciated treat in Germany, and that we should find the house filled. It was true. All the six tiers were filled, and remained so to the end, which suggested it is not only balcony people who like Shakespeare in Germany, but those of the pit and the gallery, too. Another time we went to Mannheim and attended a chivalry, otherwise an opera, the one called Lohengrin. The banging and slamming and booming and crashing were something beyond belief. The racking and pitiless pain of it remained stored up in my memory alongside the memory of the time that I had my teeth fixed. There were circumstances which made it necessary for me to stay through four hours to the end, and I stayed. But the remembrance of that long, dragging, relentless season of suffering is indestructible. To have to endure it in silence and sitting still made it all the harder. I was in a rail compartment with eight or ten strangers of the two sexes, and this compelled repression. Yet at times the pain was so exquisite that I could hardly keep the tears back. At those times, as the howlings and wailings and shriekings of the singers and the raging and roaring and explosions of the vast orchestra rose higher and higher and wilder and wilder, and fiercer and fiercer, I could have cried if I had been alone. Those strangers would not have been surprised to see a man do such a thing who was being gradually skinned, but they would have marveled at it here, and made remarks about it, no doubt, whereas there was nothing in the present case which was an advantage over being skinned. There was a wait of half an hour at the end of the first act, and I could have gone out and rested during that time. But I could not trust myself to do it, for I felt I should desert and stay out. There was another wait of half an hour toward nine o'clock, but I had gone through so much by that time that I had no spirit left, and so had no desire but to be let alone. I do not wish to suggest that the rest of the people there were like me, for indeed they were not. Whether it was that they naturally liked that noise, or whether it was that they had learned to like it by getting used to it, I did not at that time know, but they did like it. That was plain enough. While it was going on, they sat and looked as rapt and grateful as cats do when one strokes their backs. Now, whenever the curtain fell, they rose to their feet, one solid, mighty multitude, and the air was snowed thick with waving handkerchiefs, and hurricanes of applause swept the place. This was not comprehensible to me. Of course, there were many people there who were not under compulsion to stay, yet the tears were as full at the close as they had been at the beginning. 
This showed that the people liked it. It was a curious sort of play. In the matter of costumes and scenery, it was fine and showy enough, but there was not much action. That is to say, there was not much really done. It was only talked about, and always violently. It was what one might call a narrative play. Everybody had a narrative and a grievance, and none were reasonable about it, but all in an offensive and ungovernable state. There was little of that sort of customary thing where the tenor and the soprano stand down by the footlights warbling with blended voices and keep holding out their arms toward each other and drawing them back and spreading both hands over first one breast and then the other with a shake and a pressure. No, it was every rider for himself and no blending. Each sang his indicative narrative in turn, accompanied by the whole orchestra of sixty instruments, and when this had continued for some time, and one was hoping they might come to an understanding and modify the noise, a great chorus composed entirely of maniacs would suddenly break forth, and then, during two minutes, and sometimes three, I lived over again all that I had suffered the time the orphan asylum had burned down. We only had one brief little season of heaven, and heaven's sweet ecstasy and peace during all this long and diligent and acrimonious reproduction of the other place. This was while a gorgeous procession of people marched around and around in the third act and sang the wedding chorus. To my untutored ear, that was music, almost divine music. While my seared soul was steeped in the healing balm of those gracious sounds, seemed to me I could almost re-suffer the torments which had gone before in order to be so healed again. There is where the deep ingenuity of the operatic idea is betrayed. It deals so largely in pain that its scattered delights are prodigiously augmented by the contrasts. A pretty air in an opera is prettier there, than it could be anywhere else. I suppose, just as an honest man in politics shines more than he would anywhere else. I have since found out that there is nothing that the Germans like so much as an opera. They like it not in a mild and moderate way, but with their whole hearts. This is a legitimate result of habit and education. Our nation will like the opera too, by and by, no doubt. One in fifty of those who attend our operas like it already, perhaps, but I think a good many of the other forty-nine go in order to learn to like it, and the rest in order to be able to talk knowingly about it. The latter usually hum the airs while they are being sung, so that their neighbors may perceive that they have been to the opera before. The funerals of these do not occur often enough. The gentle old maidish person and a sweet young girl of seventeen sat right in front of us that night at the Mannheim Opera. These people talked between acts, and I understood them, though I understood nothing that was uttered on the distant stage. At first they were guarded in their talk, but after they had heard my agent and me conversing in English, they dropped their reserve, and I picked up many of their little confidences. No, I mean many of her little confidences, meaning the elder party, for the young girl only listened, and gave assenting nods, but never said a word. How pretty she was, and how sweet she was! I wish she would speak! But evidently she was absorbed in her own thoughts, her own young girl dreams, and 
found a dearer pleasure in silence. But she was not dreaming sleepy dreams. No, she was awake, alive, alert. She could not sit still a moment. She was an enchanting study. Her gown was of a soft, white, silky stuff that clung to her round young figure like a fish's skin, and it was rippled over with the gracefulest little fringy films of lace. She had deep, tender eyes with long, curved lashes, and she had peachy cheeks and a dimpled chin and such a dear little dewy rosebud of a mouth. And she was so dove-like, so pure and gracious, so sweet and bewitching. For long hours I did mightily wish she would speak. And at long last she did. The red lips parted, and out leapt her thought, with such a guileless and pretty enthusiasm, too. Auntie, I just know I've got five hundred fleas on me. That was probably over the average. Yes, it must have been very much over the average. The average at that time in the Grand Duchy of Baden was forty-five to a young person, when alone, according to the official estimate of the Home Secretary for that year. The average for older people was shifty and indeterminable, for whenever a wholesome young girl came into the presence of her elders, she immediately lowered their average and raised her own. She became a sort of contribution box. This dear young thing in the theater had been sitting there unconsciously taking up a collection. Many a skinny old being in our neighborhood was the happier and restfuler for her coming. In that large audience that night, there were eight very conspicuous people. These were ladies who had their hats or bonnets on. What a blessed thing it would be if a lady could make herself conspicuous in our theaters by wearing her hat. It is not usual in Europe to allow ladies and gentlemen to take bonnets, hats, overcoats, canes, or umbrellas into the auditorium. But in Mannheim this rule was not enforced because the audiences were largely made up of people from a distance. And among these were always a few timid ladies who were afraid that if they had to go into an ante-room to get their things when the play was over, they would miss their train. But the great mass of those who came from a distance always ran the risk and took the chances, preferring the loss of the train to a breach of good manners and the discomfort of being unpleasantly conspicuous during a stretch of three or four hours. Chapter 10 Three or four hours. That is a long time to sit in one place, whether one be conspicuous or not. Yet some of Wagner's operas bang along for six whole hours on a stretch. But the people sit there and enjoy it all, and wish it would last longer. A German lady in Munich told me that a person could not like Wagner's music at first, but must go through the deliberate process of learning to like it. Then he would have his sure rewards. For when he had learned to like it, he would hunger for it and never be able to get enough of it. She said that six hours of Wagner was by no means too much. She said that this composer had made a complete revolution in music, and was burying the old masters one by one. And she said that Wagner's operas differed from everybody else's in one notable respect, and that was that they were not merely spotted with music here and there, but they were all music from the first strain to the last. This surprised me. I said I had attended one of his insurrections and found hardly any music in it, 
except for the wedding chorus. She said that Lohengrin was noisier than Wagner's other operas, but that if I would keep on going to see it, I would find by and by that it was all music, and therefore would then enjoy it. I could have said, but would you advise a person to deliberately practice having the toothache in the pit of his stomach for a couple of years in order that he might come to enjoy it? But I reserved that remark. This lady was full of the praises of the head tenor who had performed in the Wagner opera the night before, and went on to enlarge upon his old and prodigious fame, and how many honors had been lavished upon him by the princely houses of Germany. Here was another surprise. I had attended that very opera in the person of my agent, and had made close and accurate observations. So I said, Why, madam, my experience warrants me in stating that the tenor's voice is not a voice at all, but only a shriek, the shriek of a hyena. That is very true, she said. He cannot sing now. It is already many years that he has lost his voice, but in other times he sang yes dividedly. So whenever he comes now, you shall see, yes, that the theater will not hold the people. Jawohl, by God! His voice is wunderschön in that past time. I said she was discovering to me a kindly trait in the Germans which was worth emulating. I said that over the water we were not quite so generous, that with us when a singer has lost his voice and a jumper has lost his legs, these parties cease to draw. I had once been to the opera in Hanover, once, and in Mannheim, once, and in Munich, through my authorized agent, once, and this large experience had nearly persuaded me that the Germans preferred singers who couldn't sing. This was not such a very extravagant speech, either, for that burly Mannheim tenor's praises had been talked of all over Heidelberg for a week before his performance took place. Yet his voice was like the distressing noise that a nail makes when you screech it across a window pane. I said so to Heidelberg friends the next day, and they said in the calmest, simplest way that that was very true, but that in earlier times his voice had been wonderfully fine, and the tenor in Hanover was just another example of this sort. The English-speaking German gentleman who went with me to the opera was brimming with enthusiasm over that tenor. He said, Ach, Gott, what a great man! You shall see him. He is so celebrated in all of Germany. He has a pension, yes, from the government. He not obliged to sing now only twice every year, but if he not sing twice each year, they take his pension away. Very well, we went. When the renowned old tenor appeared, I got a nudge and an excited whisper. Now you see him! But the celebrate was an astonishing disappointment to me. If he had been behind a screen, I should have supposed they were performing a surgical operation on him. I looked at my friend. To my great surprise, he seemed intoxicated with pleasure, his eyes dancing with eager delight. When the curtain at last fell, he burst into the stormiest applause and kept it up, as did the whole house, until the afflictive tenor had come three times before the curtain to make his bows. While the glowing enthusiast was swabbing the perspiration from his face, I said, I don't mean the least harm, but really, now, do you think he can sing? Him? No, Gott in Himmel. Aber, 
how he was able to sing 25 years ago, though. And then pensively he added, Ach, no, no, he not sing anymore, he only cry. When he think he sing now, he sing not at all, no. He only make like a cat, which is unwell. Where and how did we get the idea that the Germans are a stolid, phlegmatic race? In truth, they are widely removed from that. They are warm-hearted, emotional, impulsive, enthusiastic, with tears coming at the mildest touch. And it is not hard to move them to laughter. They are the very children of impulse. We are cold and self-contained compared to the Germans. They hug and kiss and cry, shout and dance and sing. Where we use one loving, petting expression, they pour out a score. Their language is full of endearing diminutives. Nothing that they love escapes the application of a petting diminutive, whether the house, nor the dog, nor the horse, nor the grandmother, nor any other creature, animate or inanimate. In the theaters at Hanover, Hamburg, and Mannheim, they had a wise custom. The moment the curtain went up, the lights in the body of the house went down. The audience sat in the cool gloom of a deep twilight, which greatly enhances the glowing splendors of the stage. It saved gas, too, and people were not sweated to death. When I saw King Lear played, nobody was allowed to see a scene shifted. If there was nothing to be done but slide a forest out of the way and expose a temple beyond, one did not see that forest split itself in the middle and go shrieking away, with the accompanying disenchanting spectacle of the hands and heels of the impelling impulse. No, the curtain was always dropped for an instant. One heard not the least movement behind it, but when it went back up, next instant, the forest was gone. Even when the stage was being entirely reset, one heard no noise. During the whole time that King Lear was playing, the orchestra was never down two minutes at any one time. The orchestra played until the curtain was ready to go back up for the first time. Then they departed for the evening. Where the stage waits never reach two minutes, there is no occasion for music. I had never seen this two-minute business between acts, but once before. That's when the Chandron was played at Wallach's. I was at a concert in Munich one night. The people were streaming in. The clock hand pointed to seven. The music struck up, and instantly... All movement in the body of the house ceased. Nobody was standing or walking up the aisles or fumbling with their seat. The stream of incomers had suddenly dried up at its source. I listened undisturbed to a piece of music that was fifteen minutes long, always expecting some tardy ticket holders to come crowding past my knees and being continuously and pleasantly disappointed. But when the last note was struck, here came the stream again. You see, they had made those latecomers wait in the comfortable waiting parlor from the time the music had begun until it ended. It was the first time I had ever seen this sort of criminals denied the privilege of destroying the comfort of a house full of their betters. Some of these were pretty fine birds, but no matter, they had a tarry outside in the long parlor under the inspection of a double rank of liveried footmen and waiting maids who supported the two walls with their backs and held the wraps and traps of their masters and mistresses on their arms. We had no footmen to hold our things, and it was not permissible to take them into the concert room. But there were some men and women to take charge of them for us. They gave us checks for them and charged a fixed price, payable in advance. 
five cents. In Germany, they always hear one thing at an opera which has never yet been heard in America, perhaps. I mean the closing strain of a fine solo or duet. We always smash into it with an earthquake of applause. The result is that we rob ourselves of the sweetest part of the treat. We get the whiskey, but we don't get the sugar at the bottom of the glass. One way of scattering applause along through an act seems to me to be better than the Mannheim way of saving it all up till the act is ended. I do not see how an actor can forget himself or portray hot passion before a cold, still audience. I should think he would feel foolish. It is a pain to me to this day to remember how that old German leer raged and wept and howled around the stage, and never a response from that hushed house, never a single outburst till the act was ended. To me there was something unspeakably uncomfortable in the solemn dead silences that always followed this old person's tremendous outpourings of his feelings. I could not help putting myself in his place. I thought I knew how sick and flat he felt during those silences, because I remembered a case which came under my observation once, and which, but I will tell you the incident. One evening on board a Mississippi steamboat, a boy of ten lay asleep in a berth. A long, slim-legged boy he was, encased in quite a short shirt. It was the first time he had ever made a trip on a steamboat, and so he was troubled and scared, and had gone to bed with his head filled with impending snaggings and explosions and conflagrations and sudden death. About ten o'clock, some twenty ladies were sitting around the ladies' saloon, quietly reading, sewing, embroidering, and so on, and among them sat a sweet, benign old dame with round spectacles on her nose and her busy knitting needles in her hands. Now, all of a sudden, into the midst of this peaceful scene, burst that slim-shanked boy in the brief shirt, wild-eyed, erect-haired, and shouting, Fire! Fire! Jump and run! The boat's afire! And there ain't a minute to lose! All those ladies looked sweetly up and smiled. Nobody stirred. The old lady pulled her spectacles down and looked over them and said gently, But you mustn't catch cold, child. Run and put on your breastpin, and then come and tell us all about it. It was a cruel chill to give to a poor little devil's gushing vehemence. He was expecting to be a sort of a hero, the creator of a wild panic, and here everybody sat and smiled a mocking smile, and an old woman made fun of his bugbear. I turned and crept humbly away, for I was that boy, and never even cared to discover whether I had dreamed the fire or actually seen it. I'm told that in a German concert or opera, they hardly ever encore a song, that though they may be dying to hear it again, their good breeding usually preserves them against requiring the repetition. Kings may ask for an encore. That is quite another matter. It delights everybody to see that the king is pleased. And as to an actor being encored, his pride and gratification are simply boundless. Still, there are circumstances in which even a royal encore well, it is better to illustrate. The King of Bavaria is a poet, and has a poet's eccentricities, with the advantage over all other poets of being able to gratify them, no matter what form they may take. He is fond of the opera, but not fond of sitting in the presence of an audience. Therefore, it has sometimes occurred in Munich that when an opera has been concluded, 
and the players were getting off their paint and finery, a command has come to them to get their paint and finery back on again. Presently the king would arrive, solitary and alone, and the players would begin at the beginning and do the entire opera over again, with only that one individual in the vast, solemn theater for an audience. Once he took an odd freak into his head, high up and out of sight over the prodigious stage of the court theater is a maze of interlacing water pipes, so pierced that in the case of fire, innumerable little thread-like streams of water can be used to descend, and in case of need, this discharge can be augmented to a pouring flood. American managers might take note of that. The king was the sole audience. The opera proceeded. It was a piece with a storm in it. The mimic thunder began to mutter, the mimic wind began to wail and sigh, and the mimic rain began to patter. The king's interest rose higher and higher. It developed into enthusiasm. He cried out, It is good, very good indeed, but I will have real rain. Turn on the water. The manager pleaded for a reversal of this command and said it would ruin the costly scenery and the splendid costumes, but the king cried out, No matter, no matter, I will have real rain. Turn on the water. So the real rain was turned on and began to descend in gossamer lances to the mimic flower beds and gravel walks of the stage. The richly dressed actors and actresses tripped about singing bravely and pretending not to mind it. The king was delighted. His enthusiasm grew higher, and he cried out, Bravo, bravo, more thunder, more lightning, turn on more rain. The thunder boomed, the lightning glared, the storm winds raged, the deluge poured down. The mimic royalty on the stage, with their soaked satins clinging to their bodies, slopped around ankle-deep in water, warbling their sweetest and best. The fiddlers, under the eaves of the stage, sawed away for dear life with the cold overflow spouting down the backs of their necks, and the dry and happy king sat in his lofty box and wore his gloves to ribbons, blotting. "'More yet!' cried the king. "'More yet! Let loose all the thunder! Turn on all the water! I will hang the man that raises an umbrella!' When this most tremendous and effective storm that had ever been produced in any theater was at last over, the king's approbation was measureless. He cried, Magnificent! Magnificent! Encore! Do it again! But the manager succeeded in persuading him to recall the encore, and said the company would feel sufficiently rewarded and complimented in the mere fact that the encore was desired by his majesty, without fatiguing him with a repetition to gratify their own vanity. During the remainder of the act, the lucky performers were those whose parts required changes of dress. The others were a soaked, bedraggled, and uncomfortable lot. But in the last degree, picturesque. The stage scenery was ruined. Trapdoors were swollen so that they wouldn't work for a week afterwards. The fine costumes spoiled and no end of minor damages were done by this remarkable storm. It was a royal idea, that storm, and royally carried out. But observe the moderation of the king. He did not insist upon his encore. If he had been a gladsome, unreflecting American opera audience, he probably would have had his storm repeated and repeated until he drowned all those people.
Chapter 11 The summer days passed pleasantly in Heidelberg. We had a skilled trainer, and under his instructions, we were getting our legs in the right condition for the contemplated pedestrian tours. We were well satisfied with the progress we had made in the German language, and more than satisfied with what we had accomplished in art. We had had the best instructors in drawing and painting in Germany. Hammerling, Vogel, Mueller, Dietz, and Schumann. Hammerling taught us landscape painting. Vogel taught us figure drawing. Mueller taught us to do still life. And Dietz and Schumann gave us a finishing course in two specialties. Battle pieces and shipwrecks. Whatever I am in art, I owe to these men. I have something of the manner of each and all of them. But they all said that I also had a manner of my own, and that it was conspicuous. They said there was a marked individuality about my style, insomuch that if I ever painted the commonest type of dog, I should be sure to throw a something into the aspect of that dog which would keep him from being mistaken for the creation of any other artist. Secretly, I wanted to believe all these kind sayings, but I could not. I was afraid that my master's partiality for me and pride in me biased their judgment. So I resolved to make a test. Privately and unknown to anyone, I painted my great picture, Heidelberg Castle Illuminated, my first really important work in oils, and had it hung up in the midst of a wilderness of oil pictures in the art exhibition, with no name attached to it. To my great gratification, it was instantly recognized as mine. All the town flocked to see it, and people even came from neighboring localities to visit it. It made more stir than any other work in the exhibition. But the most gratifying thing of all was the chance strangers passing through, who had not heard of my picture, were not only drawn to it as by a lodestone the moment they entered the gallery, but always took it for a turner. Mr. Harris was graduated in art about the same time with myself, and we took a studio together. We waited a while for some orders, then as time began to drag a little, we concluded to make a pedestrian tour. After much consideration, we determined on a trip up the shores of the beautiful Neckar to Heilbronn. Apparently nobody had ever done that. There were ruined castles on the overhanging cliffs and crags all the way. These were said to have their legends, like those on the Rhine. And what was better still, they had never been in print. There was nothing in the books about that lovely region. It had been neglected by tourists. It was virgin soil for the literary pioneer. Meanwhile, the knapsacks, the rough walking suits, and the stout walking shoes which we had ordered were finished and brought to us. A Mr. X and a young Mr. Z had agreed to go with us. We went around one evening and bade goodbye to our friends, and afterwards had a little farewell banquet at the hotel. We got to bed early, for we wanted to make an early start, so as to take advantage of the cool morning. We were out of bed at break of day, feeling fresh and vigorous, and took a hearty breakfast, then plunged down through the leafy arcades of the castle grounds toward the town. What a glorious summer morning it was, and how the flowers did pour out their fragrance, and how the birds did sing. It was just the time for a tramp through the woods and the mountains. We were all dressed alike, broad slouch hats to keep the sun off, gray knapsacks, blue army shirts, blue overalls, leathern gaiters buttoned tight from the knee down to the ankle, 
high quarter coarse shoes snugly laced each man had an opera glass a canteen and a guidebook case slung over his shoulder and carried an alpenstock in one hand and a sun umbrella in the other round our hats were wound many folds of soft white muslin with the ends hanging and flapping down our backs an idea brought from the orient and used by tourists all over europe Harris carried a little watch-like machine called a pedometer, whose office is to keep count of a man's steps and tell how far he has walked. Everybody stopped to admire our costumes and give us a hearty, pleasant march to you. When we got down to town, I found that we could go by rail to within five miles of Heilbronn. The train was just starting, so we jumped aboard and went tearing away in splendid spirits. It was agreed all around that we had done wisely, because it would be just as enjoyable to walk down the Neckar as up it. It could not be needful to walk both ways. There were some nice German people in our compartment. I got to talking some pretty private matters presently, and Harris became nervous, so he nudged me and said, Speak in German. These Germans may understand English. I did so, and it was well I did, for it turned out that there was not a German in the party who did not understand English perfectly. It was curious how widespread our language is in Germany. After a while, some of those folk got out, and a German gentleman and his two young daughters got in. I spoke in German to one of the latter several times, but without result. Finally, she said, Ist verstehen nur Deutsch und English? Or worse to that effect, that is, I don't understand any language but German and English. And sure enough, not only she, but her father and sister spoke English. So after that, we had all the talk we wanted. And we wanted a good deal, for they were very agreeable people. They were greatly interested in our costumes, especially the Alpenstocks, for they had not seen any before. They said that the Neckar Road was perfectly level, so we must be going to Switzerland or some other rugged country, and asked us if we did not find the walking pretty fatiguing in such warm weather. But we said no. We reached Wimpfen, I think it was Wimpfen, in three hours and got out, not the least tired, and found a good hotel and ordered beer and dinner, then took a stroll through the venerable old village. It was very picturesque and tumbled down and dirty and interesting. It had queer houses 500 years old in it and a military tower 115 feet high, which had stood there for more than 10 centuries. I made a little sketch of it. I kept a copy, but gave the original to the Burgomaster. I think the original was better than the copy, because it had more windows in it, and the grass stood up better and had a briskier look. There was none around the tower, though. I composed the grass myself from studies I made in a field by Heidelberg in Hammerling's time. The man on top, looking at the view, is apparently too large, but I found he could not be made smaller conveniently. I wanted him there. I wanted him visible so I thought out a way to manage it. I composed the picture from two points of view. The spectator is to observe the man from about where that flag is, and he was to observe the tower itself from the ground. This harmonizes the seeming discrepancy. Near an old cathedral under a shed, there were three crosses of stone, moldy and damaged things, bearing life-size stone figures. The two thieves were dressed in the fanciful court costume of the middle of the 16th century, while the Savior was nude with the exception of a cloth around his loins. 
We had dinner under the green trees in a garden belonging to the hotel and overlooking the Neckar. Then, after a smoke, we went to bed. We had a refreshing nap, then got up about three in the afternoon and put on our panoply. As we tramped gaily out of the gate of the town, we overtook a peasant's cart, partly laden with odds and ends of cabbages and similar vegetable rubbish, and drawn by a small cow and a smaller donkey yoked together. It was a pretty slow concern, but it got us to Heilbronn before dark, five miles, or possibly it was seven. We stopped at the very same inn which the famous old robber knight and rough fighter Gauntz for Berlingen abode in after he got out of captivity in the square tower of Heilbronn between 350 and 400 years ago. Harris and I occupied the same room which he had occupied, and the same paper had not all peeled off the walls yet. The furniture was quaint old carved stuff, full 400 years old, and some of the smells were over a thousand. There was a hook in the wall which the landlord said the terrific old Gotz used to hang his iron hand on when he took it off to go to bed. This room was very large. It might be called immense. And it was on the first floor, which means it was on the second story. For in Europe the houses are so high that they do not count the first story, else they would get tired climbing before they got to the top. The wallpaper was a fiery red with huge gold figures in it well smirched by time and covered all the doors. These doors fitted so snugly and continued the figures of the paper so unbrokenly that when they were closed, one had to go feeling and searching along the wall to find them. There was a stove in the corner, one of those tall, square, stately white porcelain things that looks like a monument and keeps you thinking of death when you ought to be enjoying your travels. The windows looked out on a little alley and over that into a stable and some poultry and pig yards in the rear of some tenement houses. There were the customary two beds in the room, one in one end of it and the other on the other, about an old-fashioned brass-mounted single-barreled pistol shot apart. They were fully as narrow as the usual German bed, too, and had the German bed's ineradicable habit of spilling the blankets out of the floor every time you forgot yourself and went to sleep. A round table as large as King Arthur's stood in the center of the room. While the waiters were getting ready to serve our dinner on it, we all went out to see the renowned clock on the front of the municipal buildings.